0: All right, good morning, Oh good morning. Good morning. It's my privilege to share god's word with you this morning. and as Matt kind of already alluded, it, the topic of uh, the sermon this morning is going to be coming down from the mountaintop and it seems appropriate uh, the majority of the leadership of Cavalry Chapel Iwakuni and other cavalry chapels all over Japan just spent a week last week uh, gathering to, you know, seek God and, and seek the future of the Cavalry Chapel uh, ministry in Japan. Um, I alone was, was left back, so <laughs> more, more on that later. So, you know, when we say mountaintop experience, that's a, that's a christian ease phrase. Um, you know, it, it harkens back to many of the experiences that men of God have had in, in the Bible, and, you know, often those times of meeting with God were on mountaintops. Um, and we'll look at a couple of those you know in the in the message this morning but we talk about those experiences and those are times when we feel really close to god they may be during a retreat or you know some sort of event and we feel close to god feel close to you know his followers his you know sons and daughters and just things are moving and god is just you know, palpably there and we can experience all the things that he is doing of course, personally, I've I've had that experience. You know, I was fortunate enough to come to the Lord at a young age, and so I experienced that youth group retreat, uh, high and campus crusade for Christ retreats, and officers' Christian fellowship retreats, and credo retreats, and even whole seasons of life where I was at you know a church or in a Bible study that was really an incredible blessing, and and I really saw you know myself mature in, in the Lord and others around me really seeking the Lord. And, and those are just amazing, amazing times. But of course, uh, I returned from those experiences. I came back and, you know, I still had exams and I still had work problems, still struggled with, you know, sin or personal issues with other believers. You know, my kids still weren't, you know, everything that I wanted my kids to be, you know, mostly probably because of me. You know, we all have that sin nature. In short, the world was still the world when I came down off those mountaintops. And when Pastor Glenn preached through Luke chapter 9 on the transfiguration a couple of months ago, um, I was just really reminded of, of this, the fact that we all have to come down from these experiences at some point. And I want to use that as a jumping off point for the message this morning. So if you would stand with me and uh, turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. We'll start in verse 28. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you or don't have one on your phone, there's one under the seat in front of you. And I'll be reading from the, the New King James Version. All right, so Luke chapter 9, verse 28. Now it came to pass about eight days after these sayings that he took Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered and his robe became white and glistening. And behold, two men talked with him who were Moses and Elijah who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep, and when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Then it happened as they were parting from him that Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were fearful as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. When the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone, but they kept quiet and told no one in those days any of the things they had seen. Now it happened on the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, that a great multitude met him. Suddenly a man from the multitude cried out saying, teacher, I implore you. Look on my son, for he is my only child, and behold, the spirit seizes him and suddenly cries out; it convulses him, so he foams at the mouth, and it departs from him with great difficulty, bruising him. So I implored your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Then Jesus answered and said, "O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here." And as he was still coming, the demon threw him down and convulsed him. Then Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit healed the child, and gave him back to his father. Please pray with me. Dear Lord, thank you for this morning, this opportunity to gather as believers, to open up your word, to learn more about you and who we are in you, Lord, and and to learn how we transition from those amazing experiences that you grant us back to our normal routines. Just you, Lord, Lord, Your Holy Spirit be the teacher and preacher this morning, and anything that's not of you would be quickly forgotten. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please be seated. So, of course, this was a clear mountaintop experience for Jesus and his core disciples, Peter, James, and John. But I want to focus on the two other men who were there, Moses and Elijah. Both of them were forerunners of Christ representing the law, of course, the Mosaic law, and then the prophets represented by Elijah. So both of them had incredible mountaintop experiences during their ministry, and God worked powerfully through them. But how did these men come down from the mountaintop? What kind of you know pitfalls did they experience? What How did they accomplish it? And then ultimately, how did Jesus accomplish it coming down from the mountain after the transfiguration? And we'll look at that last. But first, I want to look at Moses. So, of course, Moses, you know, a man who needs little introduction amongst people who have been through Sunday school. But he was the baby placed in the basket in the Nile. He was miraculously saved by one of Pharaoh's household, raised in the Pharaoh's household for 40 years, spent 40 years in exile. God chooses him, brings him back. And for 40 years, he leads God's people, including out of Egypt in the exodus. And so we're going to pick up this story in Exodus chapter 19. And we're going to be looking at three sections of scripture. That section in Luke, so keep your finger in there. And then a sec- you know several sections in Exodus. And then several sections in 1 Kings when we're talking about Elijah. So Exodus chapter 19, verse 1 through 4. In the third month after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the same day they came to the wilderness of Sinai. For they had departed from Rephidim and come to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. So Israel camped there before the mountain. And Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles wings and brought you to myself. So Moses is going back and forth from the mountaintop down into the plain, down into the valley to speak with the people. He is acting as God's mouthpiece during this time. And of course, famously, you know, the people receive the Ten Commandments. But that is just really the tip of the iceberg of what God imparts to them during this time. For those of you who have read through Exodus, the next 12 chapters are all about the different laws that God imparts to them. So the Ten Commandments... Laws about property rights, laws about personal injury, laws about national feasts, how to build the Ark of the Covenant, directions on the tabernacle, how all the priestly implements and garments are to be made, what materials they're supposed to be made of, how they're to be worn. A true comprehensive blueprint for this nation, this nation of priests, this people set apart, this holy nation. And so after they've received all of this, you think, oh, well, They've received God's direction. They have, God has told them, this is how you set up your government. This is how you set up your tribe. And this is how you set up your people. And so we think, oh, well, clearly they're just going to follow this and everything's going to be fine, right? Obviously not. Um, Exodus chapter 32. And this was leading into my first observation. Um, So, you know, pastors have points and I'm going to be making observations. Um, So... (laughs) First observation is, is following Exodus 32. So Exodus chapter 32, looking at verse 1. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we did not know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, Break off the golden earrings, which are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters. And bring them to me. So all the people broke off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it with an engraving tool, and made a molded calf. And then they said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. Okay. So here they are, they've just received God's blueprint, you know, for life, that first one being, You shall know have no other gods before me, and they they messed that one up already. Okay. And it, and Later on, of course, you know, Moses comes down from the mountain, spoiler alert, Moses comes down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments, and that is not the first time that the people receive the Ten Commandments. So this isn't like a situation where they're like, oh man, we had no idea, we weren't supposed to make golden calves, whoa, whoops. No, they absolutely knew, they were well aware, it's just they were following this blueprint that they had seen in Egypt, and here they are for, you know, concerned that Moses isn't coming back. So that leads me to my first point. Sorry, first observation. Uh, don't be impatient with the Lord. So here's the nation of Israel. The Israelites have been in captivity in Egypt for 400 years and very little seems to be happening. They're just waiting and waiting and waiting. Like where, when is salvation going to come for us? When are we going to escape the nation of Egypt? And then finally, so much happens within a very short period of time. Just, you know, months, And, and they are, they are freed. They, they escape Egypt. They defeat the mightiest nation then on the planet. The strongest ruler on the face of the earth at that time, the Pharaoh of Egypt, is defeated, shown to be powerless in the face of God. And all of the gods of Egypt are powerless to stop Yahweh. So all that's just happened. And here they are, and things appear to have ground to a halt in the desert. And nothing's happening. Moses is gone and back and gone and back and they're waiting and waiting and waiting. Like, okay, we need to move things along. Let's make some more gods that they'll show us what to do. They're, they're the new thing. Now, I don't think any of us generally are tempted to fashion idols, but in the same way, when we come down off these mountaintop experiences, sometimes we want to help God out and we're like, okay, rather than waiting on the Lord, Let's, let's push forward and let's do something else. Let's, you know, let's create another ministry opportunity or let's step out and do this other thing rather than waiting on the Lord and being patient. And so, you know, looking at second Peter chapter three, verse nine, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So after these mountaintop experiences, when the pace seems to be so rapid, we need to kind of resist the tendency to try to run ahead of the Lord. We need to wait on Him and wait in His will. All right, let's keep going. So Exodus chapter 32, verse 15. God tells Moses about the situation in the camp. And then in verse 15, Moses turned and went down from the mountain, and the two tablets of the testimony were in his hand. These tablets were written on both sides. On the one side and on the other side they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. Verse 19. So it was as soon as he came near the camp that he saw the calf and the dancing. And so Moses' anger became hot And he cast the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. So Moses comes down from the mountaintop, bearing God's law, bearing God's commandments, bearing God's direction to his people, sees what's happening and smashes them on the ground. And looking at a couple of commentaries, they said, hey, this is a symbolic action depicting the people breaking God's commandments. But when I see this, I also see a very frustrated leader. Just true human frustration. And I don't think he was prepared for what it was going to be like when he came down the mountain. You know, He was there with God. God was telling him, hey, there's a problem down in the camp. But I truly don't think he thought, oh, I'm sure that you know they, they've reverted to idol worship. I don't think that he was ready for that. So he's frustrated. I think he also is displaying God's righteous anger toward these actions. But he smashes these tablets, this direction from the Lord. So this brings me to my second observation. Don't forget what you learned on the mountaintops. So very often after we've had that experience at a retreat or during a season of growth, when we're really getting into God's word, you know, it's very easy to then when we get back into regular life or when we get back into you know, the routine that we've already established, to fall into old patterns. You know, to forsake the things that we established during that previous season. So whether that's Bible study, whether that's meeting and fellowship, whether that's a prayer life, whatever that might be, we kind of forsake that and go back to the things that are normal and easy and comfortable. And I just implore you and myself as well not to do that, to remember those things that you learned when you were on the mountaintop and to keep those current in your life. As a former pastor of mine often would say, if you don't practice what you know, you will never grow. And so if you are not putting into place those things, those truths that the Lord has imparted to you and revealed to you in his word, you're never going to mature uh, in your Christian walk and your Christian experience. Romans twelve two: do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So let that mountaintop experience be a milestone in your life that marks the start of a new relationship with God and with His fellow believers. All right, continuing on here in verse or in chapter thirty-two of Exodus, just gets worse. Sorry, sorry to say, spoiler. So verse twenty-two. So Aaron said, "Do not let the anger of my Lord, Lord Little L, talking to Moses, become hot. You know the people that they are set on evil." And they said to me, Make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And I said to them, Whoever has any gold, let them break it off. And they gave it to me, and I cast it into the fire, and this calf came out. Amazing. All right, so Aaron blames everyone else, right? Aaron blames the evil tendencies of the people. Aaron blames Moses for not coming down and kind of you know indirectly blaming God for talking to him too long. And he blames the golden calf for springing fully formed out of the fire, which of course is a lie. Like we, we heard a couple of verses earlier that Aaron fashioned this thing. He asked for the, for the gold and maybe he or some of the craftsmen in the camp fashioned this idol and then declared that it was the one that had, you know, saved them from Egypt. So what can we learn from this? Observation number three. Fellow believers will still fail us after these mountaintop experiences. So we have this incredible experience. We go on this retreat, and then we come back, and we expect, okay, that same feeling of closeness to these fellow believers is going to continue on, and then it doesn't. And, you know, of course, you know, I'm as fallible as, as anyone else, and so I've certainly failed people plenty of times. I've failed my family. I've failed my kids. You know, I haven't been there when I'm supposed to be. I haven't responded in the way that, you know, God would want me to. And yet, here we are. Like, you come down from the mountain, You you are not you have not yet arrived. Okay, we're all still going to fail each other in this life, unfortunately. But here, this is could have potentially been even more devastating, because Moses he picked Aaron. Aaron is his right hand man. This is the man that when God told him to go and do this mission, he said, "I can't do this on my own. I need you know, bring Aaron. Let let me have Aaron with me because he can speak for me." And yet Aaron is the one who fails so spectacularly here. And as we'll see when we look at Elijah, this type of failure, this type of, you know, betrayal almost, I mean, it can be devastating. It can truly, you know, have us veer off path uh, in, in our Christian walk. But the important part is our expectations when we come down off the mountain. Do we expect that all of life is going to be smooth and easy or do we realize that the world is still sinful? The world is still wicked. Got a little extra background music going on here. All right. So, but let's not be too hard on Aaron because he wasn't on the mountaintop, right? He wasn't there with Moses. He didn't experience the same things that Moses did. And kind of as a sub-point to this, this concern or this issue is the fact that we as, you know, Husbands, wives, mothers, fathers, you know, people with jobs and responsibilities. It might be hard to take that time out, to carve out that time to go on retreats or Bible studies or men's or women's groups. And yet it's important that we do that. It's important that we prioritize those things so that God can work in those experiences and truly change us and allow us to mature. So, you know, I'm preaching in myself here as well. You know, to do that, to make those things a priority and carve them out so that we might continue to grow and give God that opportunity to move in us and through us. Alright, so that's Moses. So let's move on to Elijah. All right, so uh this the next verse will be in first Kings chapter eighteen, as you go toward it, but just by way of introduction, so Elijah is a prophet sent to the northern kingdom. Of Israel during the time of one of the most wicked, if not the most wicked king of Israel, Ahab, and his evil wife, Jezebel. There's a horrible state of idolatry going on. Multiple gods are being worshipped, including Baal. There's child sacrifice, idol worship, cult prostitution, pretty much everything contrary to that blueprint that we talked about that Moses had received from God on the mountain. So 1 Kings chapter 18, starting in verse 20. So Ahab sent for all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. And Elijah came to all the people and said, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people answered him not a word. And Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Therefore, let them give us two bulls. Let them choose one bowl for themselves, cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood and put no fire under it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. Then you will call on the name of your gods, little g, and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. So here you have the ultimate mountaintop showdown between 450 prophets of Baal and Elisha on the other side. The one man versus the 450, but the one man has God on his side, so it's really not a fair fight. So Elijah has his sacrifice, you know, doused in water multiple times. And this is after the prophets of Baal, they cry out to their God in vain for hours. They slash themselves, screaming till their voices are hoarse. Nothing happens, not a spark. ...on their sacrifice. Elijah douses his in, in water multiple times until it's drenched. Then he prays to God and the, the sacrifice and the altar itself, the very stones are consumed by fire. God's man, versus 450, prophets of Baal. God grants this incredible victory over the prophets of Baal. He demonstrates that he alone is the God of the universe. He's totally in control of the environment, the elements he makes a mockery of these false gods and the people there they repent the people that earlier had no wor- opinion they said we falter and they said nothing these men and women they repent and they execute the false prophets there and soon after this victory elisha prays and the drought of over 3 years breaks and it rains an incredible victory that god works through elisha to make to create But that brings me to observation number four. This is not the final victory. And we'll look at 1 Kings chapter 19, immediately following this incredible mountaintop. And so Ahab, the king, tells Jezebel all that Elijah had done, also how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a message to Elijah saying, now let the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, he arose and he ran for his life. He went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree and prayed that he might die and said, It is enough now, Lord. Take my life, for I am no better than my father's. So he goes from the very mountaintop, the very pinnacle, where he sees God moving in such a powerful way, all the way to the valley, to the very nadir, the bottom, where he's asking God to take his life. Just take me. I I can't do this anymore. And I believe that's because he wasn't ready for this response. Jezebel hadn't changed. Ahab hadn't changed. There was no sweeping national victory the only thing that he saw was this promise by the queen to kill him. And obviously he took that promise pretty seriously because he ran away and he hid himself in the wilderness. He thought that that mountaintop experience had completely cleared the chessboard and, you know, he had won this victory for the Lord and it was over. Game set, match done. And he was not ready for what happened afterwards. And that can be similar for us. You know, if we go on, the, you know, on a retreat or have a season of growth, and we think, "Oh, this is it! I'm no longer going to struggle with sin, or I'm never going to have this problem again, or I'm never going to run into these issues, or I'm never going to experience these problems in my life," and then those problems come up, it can be just devastating for our faith. We need to have a proper mindset. That while we are going to have troubles in this life, and, and Jesus promised, you know, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. We also need to keep in mind that he has already provided a way to overcome sins. He has completed his finished work on the cross. When he yelled to Telestat, it is finished, it is paid in full. Sin and death were defeated. We know the end of the story. We just have to flip to the end of the Bible. The outcome is already certain, but it's not yet. It's not yet. All right, let's keep reading here in First Kings. Moving on to observation number five. So 1 Kings chapter 19, verse five through eight. So here is Elijah just tired, exhausted, discouraged, And as he lay and slept under a broom tree, suddenly an angel touches him and says to him, arise and eat. Then he looked and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. So observation five is we may need rest after the mountaintop. After we're up there and we are, you know, things seem to always happen so quickly on the mountaintop. God is moving and we're trying to keep up to be in the center of his will. And I know as a type A type person myself, you know there's a tendency to try to maintain that pace once we've come off the mountaintop and and God is no longer moving at that pace, but we try to keep up that pace ourselves. You may need to recover before you can serve well again. You may need to take that time out. You may need to have that season of rest and recuperation before you jump right back into serving the Lord. And so number six is similar here as, as we look at this. So Elijah is, of course, discouraged. He's tired. He's resting. But one of the reasons that he's so tired and discouraged is because of his mindset. When we look at observation six. You are not alone. But that's what Elijah thought. Look and read with me. First Kings chapter 19, verse 14. And he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars and killed your prophets with a sword, and I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it. So I can kind of understand where he's coming from here, because, you know, God had set him up as an example to you, to demonstrate God's power. And so he alone is standing there against 450 prophets of Baal. And yet the point of doing that and the point that God you know, demonstrates over and over again throughout the Bible is one of God's men or God's women in, you know, against a multitude of the enemy isn't a fair fight because God's on the other side. And so you don't have to look too far in the Old Testament to see time after time again where God makes the stakes such... That it's impossible to believe that the Israelites got these its victories on their own. You know, Gideon and just a handful of his men able to overcome an entire army. You know, obviously Elijah here, you know, just over and over again, God demonstrates he isn't in, in control. He is the master of this universe and we are not. And so Elijah sees this And so that's kind of the dark side of feeling empowered by God is kind of this prideful idea of, well, I'm the only one that can do this. You know, God set me up. So, you know, I'm, I'm the only one and I have to take all of this on myself and I alone am battling against the world. But of course, this was a lie. And we're not going to look at it, but look at 1 Kings uh, chapter 18 verse 4 uh, when you have a moment later. And so Obadiah, who's a God-fearing man who actually happens to, you know, work Under King Ahab, you know, he had specifically hidden a hundred prophets of the Lord away in a cave so that they would be safe from Jezebel. And he told Elisha about this and Elisha chooses to ignore it or he's forgotten it and is just focusing on the fact, I'm the only one. I'm the only one. And then, you know, some short time later, God then explains to Elisha, Hey, I'm going to move this mantle. I'm now going to provide Elisha to take over for you. The mantle of prophet will move to him. And by the way, there were still 7,000 in Israel who had never worshipped Baal, who had never bent the knee to him. So it's interesting that, you know, when we think back, Moses actually succeeded in this regard where Elijah kind of failed. I mean, you think about it. He had come down off the mountain, you know, from the very presence of God and all he sees is idol worship across the entire camp they're all worshiping this newly fashioned golden calf and claiming that this is the god that you know freed them from egypt and he heard all of Aaron's excuses and his you know his closest his right-hand man his closest ally had failed him and yet instead of despairing he rallies the levites to him they cleanse the camp and set about disciplining god's people he could have easily despaired, but he didn't. So in the present, it's important for us to realize that even it, when we have that mountaintop experience and when the God is moving you know, in us and using us in a, in a powerful way, we, we can't then turn it around and say, oh, well, I'm the only one who can accomplish this. Because God has provided the body of believers. God has provided the church to accomplish his will here on earth in the present. And Paul explains that through the metaphor of a body. You look at First Corinthians chapter twelve. You know, just this concept of, you know, we're not all hands, we're not all feet, we're not all eyes, we're not all ears, but together we have all the gifts that the Lord needs to accomplish his will. And it's just an encouragement for all of us to be active, to be a part of God's ministry here, but just to realize that none of us has to shoulder this burden alone. God provides the Holy Spirit to comfort us and encourage us. And then he reminds us in the Great Commission that he's going to be with us always, even to the end of the age. All right, so I told you to keep a finger in Luke. It's now time to go back to that finger that's probably gotten tired of being squished underneath the, the rest of the Bible there. So let's go go back to Luke chapter 9 and we'll uh, start back into this, the transfiguration. So obviously, you know, Christ was the only perfect man who ever walked on the earth. Uh, so he does coming down off of the mountaintop perfectly, not surprisingly. But there are some great observations that we can make um, from this experience here. So we're back in Luke chapter 9, verse 32. But Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep. And when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Then it happened as they were parting from him, you know, they're about to leave. That Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. All right. Every pastor I think loves Peter. And I certainly love Peter too because he's like so quick on the trigger and just, you know, doesn't always think things through. But man, is he, you know, is you know, the classic Marine Corps saying, good initiative, bad judgment. Hey, hold back. Wait, wait a second. And so he has this great idea, we're gonna create some temporary structures, you know, one for you Lord, and then Moses and Elijah, and you know, we could, we could stay here. So that brings me to point seven, or sorry, observation seven. We cannot remain on the mountaintop, alright? Pastor Glenn talked about this briefly when he preached through this section of scripture a couple of weeks or months ago. Uh, we can't stop on the mountaintop. That's not the way God has structured this life. So some try to go from mountaintop experience to mountaintop experience, go from one to the next. Um, I even know you know, some friends of mine who tried to enter into full-time ministry with that expectation, like, okay, if I go on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ, it's just going to be mountaintop experience, and one after the next. I'm never going to go back down into the valleys. It's going to go lateral across all these mountaintop peaks. It's going to be amazing. Uh, that's just not how it works. Okay, These experiences are great, and they're encouraging, but they are temporary. And people, you will come back down uh, to the valley, come back down into, you know, life, uh, real life, as it were. All right, so we can't stay on the mountaintop. We also can't artificially recreate a previous mountaintop experience in a new one. And so here is Peter, and you know, we can't be too hard on him because he's just doing what he knows. So this, a lot of the commentators believe he's trying to recreate the Feast of the Tabernacles. Um, this is an Old Testament uh, experience or an Old Testament feast in which they would create temporary structures and live in them for a short period of time just to experience and remember the wanderings in the desert. And that's what he was trying to do, well, most commentators believe. And so he was trying to put this kind of Old thing onto this new thing and it didn't, doesn't work. So if you look at, you know, the Lord's commentary on that itself, look at Matthew chapter 9 verse 16 and 17. No one puts a piece of unshrunken cloth on an old garment for the patch pulls away from the garment and the tear is made worse. Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins for else the wineskins break and the wine is spilled and the wineskins are ruined but they put new wine into new wineskins and both are preserved. So this is the Lord's commentary on trying to put, you know, the, the new covenant into these old kind of old systems or this old concepts of, you know, of, of these, of this feast of this feast of tabernacles. He, you know, here is Peter trying to put this new experience, this new concept of who Christ is. And he says, Oh, well, let's, it's like the feast of tabernacles. We'll just do it like that. Um, and that's not what we should be doing. All right, so we're, we're getting close here to the final observation. So we're looking at verse 37. Now it happened on the next day as they were coming down from the mountain that a great multitude met him. Suddenly a man from the multitude cried out, saying, Teacher, I implore you, look on my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him and suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and it departs from him with great difficulty, bruising him. So I implored your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. And as he was still coming, the demon threw him down and convulsed him. Then Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the child, and gave him back to his father. So observation number eight, stay humble. So obviously, you know, Moses... And Elijah, and now here Christ have these mountaintop experiences. And we have these mountaintop experiences as well where God moves powerfully through us. And, and, you know, as we are in the center of his will, we just watch all of these things occur. But it's so important that we continue to remain humble and remain focused on the Lord and not ourselves. And, of course, Christ does exactly that. He was just honored above any other man that's ever walked the face of the earth. During this transfiguration, God specifically calls him his son. And yet, as he's coming down off the mountain, he's accosted by this multitude of people and they want things from him immediately. They're not honoring him. They're not worshiping him. They're asking for things like, Lord, please heal my son. And not only heal my son, heal my son, and he, you know, the, your disciples were supposed to do this job, but they couldn't, they failed you, so now can you do this? So, here the Lord is being confronted with this situation, and this task of healing was not beneath him in any way. He immediately set to heal this young man. And this reminds me of the quote that's often used, if service or serving is below you, then leadership is beyond you. And that should be no more true than it is in the church, where God told everyone that his followers, his disciples, should be known by their love, and we should be known by our love one for another. And, of course, he is disappointed and frustrated. I mean, he says, "Oh, faithless and perverse generation. So he is disappointed and frustrated, but he's not surprised by the disciples' lack of faith. He knows the weakness of man, and he knows the wickedness of this world. And he doesn't let those things discourage him. And he immediately gets to his father's work. And that's exactly the way a mountaintop experience should affect us. It should empower us, encourage us, and teach us so that when we come down off the mountain, we're ready to immediately engage in God's will and stay in the center of what he has for us. Please pray with me. Dear Lord, thank you again for this Time that we have this morning to get into your word, to learn more about you, to learn about how you use these times on the mountaintop where we can just gather together with believers to be encouraged and built up, to be taught, to be trained. Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you also that we know that this type of experience is just a glimpse of heaven Lord, and how we can be so close to you and in a right relationship with you, right relationship with other believers around us. And Lord, we just pray that you empower us as we go from this place today and lead us so that we might be in the center of your will. In Jesus' name, amen.